My name is Ken Thompson. I think most of you probably know that. I'm an elder here, but if there's somebody new here that doesn't, I, um, Pastor Rory's gone for a couple of weeks, so, so I'll be filling in and bringing the message for the next, for the next two weeks. Um, we've been looking through Genesis, and today we'll, this will be part two of a sermon on Genesis. We studied a few weeks ago about the evidence for the flood and how the biblical view is far superior to the evolutionary view. It, it was really a sermon on apologetics, which is really a defense of what the Bible says. And, and so that was our first sermon. But this sermon today is going to be the reasons that God sent the flood and how many warnings there are for today's world. This will not be apologetics, defending. This will be proclaiming. God's judgment and God's mercy do not need to be defended. They need to be proclaimed. And that's what this message will do today. The first part of this message there's three parts this message. The first part will be why there was a flood. The second part will be the ancient world leading up to the flood. And the third will be warnings for today's world and the events preceding Christ's return. First of all, God did not use a flood to create a better world. Someone put it best, eight sinners walked onto the ark and eight sinners walked off the ark. The better world will be ushered in by Christ. The flood, there was a flood for a different reason than that. And I believe there's two reasons for the flood. The first is to show that God will bring judgment against all unrighteousness. And the second is to show God's mercy in the picture and the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope these come across very clearly today. But why did God use a flood to show these things? Why a flood? The flood seems like foolishness to an unbelieving world. But so does the cross. There are many things in scripture that seem like foolishness. But God uses that. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it states, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. <clears throat> God chose what is low and despised in the world. And the reason he does that is why, in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is sovereign, and we're, there's no boasting when we come before God. And we'll see that today. There are many times in the Bible where God either does not show the reason why he does something 
or he tells people to do something that seems foolish to expose pride and selfishness. One example is in Genesis 1. An example of where God does not tell people how he did things or why he did things. He just tells us that he did things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God created the heavens and the earth. If we go down to Genesis 1.14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule a day and the lesser light to rule a night, and the stars. Some versions say... And he made the stars also. Almost as an afterthought. This, This is offensive to the modern mind. We need more than that, people say. We need a naturalistic explanation. Why do we need a naturalistic explanation? Either you're going to believe it or you're not. God does not give a naturalistic explanation. He doesn't even give a supernatural explanation. He just says that he did it. And that's enough. That has to be enough because God would have told us more if he had wanted us to know more. God does not get into long scientific arguments with people who have already rejected him because they don't want a holy God ruling over them. It doesn't matter how much evidence God gave, they would not believe anyway. Another way that God uses things that seem foolish is to expose self and pride. An example would be Naaman. I'm not going to read the whole verse, but it's in, um, it's in 2 Kings 5, 1 to 16. Now, Naaman was a um, commander of the... Of the uh, of the um, Aramean army. And he was a powerful man, probably one of the most powerful men on earth at that time because the army was the most powerful on earth. But he had leprosy. And it turned out that there was a servant girl from Israel that had been taken. And she sent word to Naaman that There's a prophet in Israel you need to go to and you can be healed. This would be Elisha. And so he did. But he didn't go to the prophet. He went to the king. He showed up with his army in front of the king's palace and said, heal me of this leprosy. And the king said, who am I, God, that I can heal leprosy? And, uh, and along at this time, Nathan, or I'm uh, sorry, uh, Elisha the prophet sent word to the king, said, send him to me and I'll heal him. So here's Naaman, takes his army, 
and he's standing before Elisha's house. And Elisha didn't even go out to see him. He just sent a servant out, and he said, go wash seven times in the Jordan. And Naaman was angry. And there's two reasons he was angry. And one of the reasons was is because he expected something great to be done. He was a great man. He expected something great to be done. He said, why, why didn't he come out and speak to his God and wave his hand over me and heal my leprosy? And, um, and another reason was because he expected to be asked to do something great. And his servant said, but if he asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? All he asked you to do was go bathe in the Jordan. So he finally did, fortunately for him. And, um, but it shows that, and, and we, we're the same way today. We want either something great done to us, or we want to be asked to do something great. But God, a lot of the time, uses something simple, something that seems foolish. Just go do this, you know. But this is the way God works, so that our pride and our self-righteousness is revealed. And, and I really do believe that as we look into this Sermon on the Flood, that we'll see this. Christ compared his second coming to the pre-flood world. In Matthew 24, 37 to 40, He said, um, for, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days, as, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he links his second coming to the pre-flood world. And there's also warnings in Isaiah, where Isaiah is warning Israel about the coming destruction and exile they were going to be going in. Christ also links this, and we'll see that later to his second coming. So these judgments are linked. Jesus is also linked the judgment and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to his second coming. And if we look in Luke 17, 28 to 30. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So now we're linking these judgments. But one thing we'll see is that every time God brings judgment, he also shows his mercy. It's always linked to mercy as well. We really, um, we really need to 
to take heed because there is warnings for today's world. And that'll lead us into point three. It points forward to a time of judgment, but, uh, but it also points forward to a time of God's great mercy. And that's, this sermon sounds like it may be judgment, it may be brimstone, but it actually is mercy. And you'll see that as this goes on. So what was the sin of Sodom? I think most of us know the, the debauchery that was taking place in Sodom. And we say that must have been the sin of Sodom. But the Bible shows that these were just fruit sins. There was a deeper root problem that led to the depravity in Sodom. And it's the same problem we have in this world today. Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50. We'll look at it. Ezekiel 16, beginning in 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease. Some translations say careless ease. And I really do believe that we live in careless ease in this country. We've, we've always lived in easy prosperity. And it's saying here that that was what eventually caused the destruction of Sodom. And eventually that will cause the destruction of this nation. Because now we reject God because we really don't believe we need him anymore. Or worse, we're actually hostile to him. Isaiah 3, 9 as a verse. It says, and he's talking about Jerusalem here and the judgment that's going to come against Jerusalem. But he actually shows it as being parallel to Sodom. Because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. That's actually, sorry, starting in 8. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They don't even hide it. Is that not our world today? Sin, debauchery, paraded in front of people, proud of it. They don't even try to hide it. They're, 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 it it's something that they boast in. And, and that's, where, that's where we see Sodom going from careless ease prosperous ease to this and that's the country of Canada and many countries around the world are the same 
Zephaniah has a passage in Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah, it's one of the minor prophets. He's uh, just before Zechariah. Actually, just, yeah. But, um, but he says here in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he said, and this is Jerusalem again. He said, at, this, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. And he says here, this is what will happen to them. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink wine from them. So many people are acting like that today. In today's world, we're complacent. We're complacent as God's judgment is about to fall. When justice is delayed, people believe people begin to believe it's not coming. We think we can get away with more and more and more because justice has been delayed. And we'll learn later that justice is actually delayed because God is patient. But we think he's not coming. I, I grew up in, in, a, in the late 60s, early 70s when there was... Um, it was a um, promiscuous time, a permissive time. It was, and, and the world just seemed to test how much we could get away with. And then it went into the 70s and things broke down. And as we see, it's just spiraling more and more out of control. But again, we better be careful because when we think, this is not going to happen. God will not do good, nor will he do ill. Second Peter 2, 5, and 6 also tells us that these things are an example for us today. It's not just something that happened thousands of years ago. Because it's all linked to today. Christ linked the judgments with his second coming. And Peter talks about these being an example. He says... Um, in uh, in Second Peter five, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the earth of the ungodly, by turning the if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is an example that we need to be aware of today. It's an example to us. And we have to learn from examples. Because again, God is merciful. 
He shows us examples and we're not to make the same mistake that we seem to. In, um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 to 12, Actually, we'll start in five. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, this is the people who came out of Egypt with Moses. They went through the sea and they received all the blessings. But he says, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so there's times in the past that are clearly laid out as examples for us. And we really need to listen because if there's an, if there's an example laid out if there's a warning and we don't heed it, what, ha what happens to people who don't heed a warning? And we're going to look into a couple of passages. One is in Isaiah 2. And I'm actually going to quote it out of the New American Standard. It says, for the Lord of hosts has a day of reckoning against all proud and lofty. There's a day of reckoning coming. I know many of you people have probably heard that before, but it says in the Bible, the Lord has a day of reckoning. And he goes on down in Isaiah 2. We look down 17 to 19. And this is actually warning Jerusalem about the coming destruction and exile that's coming but, but listen to the words because this is when the day of reckoning comes and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled the lofty pride of man shall be brought low the Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols shall utterly pass away the people shall enter the caves of rocks and the holes in the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from, and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. So he brought judgment against Israel, but I, I want to see you, I want you to read a parallel passage with me. It's actually in Revelation, and this is about Christ's second coming. It's Revelation 6, 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain an island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the great ones, 
the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of wrath has come who can stand well i can tell you who can stand the people who are in christ on that day will stand But you notice how there's a judgment that fell in ancient times and it's compared to the judgment that falls today. Or not, or this is a future event. This has not, this has not happened yet. But the events leading up to it are very much mirrors of our day. So there we have the judgment. But fortunately, the story does not end there. Because now we're going to see the mercy. We're going to look at God's mercy. So that we don't have to come under this judgment. In Christ, we're completely safe and secure against what is coming. Completely. First thing I want to look at is the ark. The flood is a perfect picture of God's judgment. But the ark is a perfect picture of God's mercy. It's a perfect picture of Christ. The ark stood there for as long as a hundred years, most scholars believe. And anyone could have asked Noah why he was spending his time building something so massive. What are you doing? He would have told them that the earth was going to be judged in a worldwide flood and man would perish. But whoever entered into the ark would be saved. And it says in, and we read it in Second Peter 2.5 that Noah was a herald of righteousness. The word there is translated in many versions as uh, he's a preacher of righteousness. Noah preached the gospel to them. Anyone who entered that door of that ark would not come under condemnation, would not come under the wrath of God. He had no takers other than his family. So today, let's look at the cross. We look at the cross in the same light. When someone asks us why we spend our lives speaking about Christ and the cross, we tell them that judgment is going to be poured out against all unrighteousness. It's the same message. The only hope we have as unrighteous sinners is to come to the cross in repentance and cry out, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm just going to end here with, with the three verses. And it's about not only God's mercy, 
thought about how God wants to pour out his blessings upon us. If we, if we cry out in repentance and come to the cross, something changes. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see there, he wants to, um, he wants to lavish these things upon us. This is not a judgmental God. This is a God who wants to bless us God made a way for people who have rejected him, people who have turned away, and we all have. We are all unrighteous sinners. But God wants to lavish these things. What does he want to lavish on? Is it goods? Is it more prosperity? No, it's not. It's none of it. He wants to lavish upon us wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will. God actually wants to, us to know his will. And what is it? It's according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ to unite all things in heaven and on earth. So eventually we're going to see in the fullness of time when Christ returns, we're going to see things united. We're going to see a better world. This world today, as we know, is broken. We don't have to look around very far to see the world is broken. In fact, it's under man, the world is spiraling out of control. Fortunately, under God, it is not. It's it's. It's according to his perfect will. There's nothing happens upon this earth apart from God. But man is allowed to destroy this world. We can see it. And that's why we need to believe this. We need to come to the cross. Because God wants to restore things. He wants to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ. Reconciliation. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8. 8 Second 2 Peter 3.9 is another place where we see God's mercy. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
and the heavens will pass away with a roar. So just because God is patient doesn't mean this is not going to happen. It means he's patient. I know that because God was patient with me. There was many years where I rebelled against his teaching. But God is patient. He doesn't want people to perish. He says in Ezekiel that I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we see that in Christ. He does not take pleasure, but he does take pleasure in sinners coming to Christ. But again, he's a patient God. In John 6, 37, there's another, another verse Actually, we're going to start in 635. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that to you who have seen me and do not believe. So these are the Pharisees he's actually talking to. But the promise is there to those who believe. And then he says, all that the Father give me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we see here the providence of God. And that's clear in scripture. But you notice how he says here that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I think a lot of people think, you know, I've just done too much. I've sinned too much. God could never accept me. He will, he will cast me out. I think a lot of people actually believe that, but that is not true. He says here, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Um, we, we see here two things. We, we, see, we see the outward call that we can give. The outward call, come to Christ. But we also see here the inward call. There's an inward call that God calls us. And when God calls us, we will not be cast out. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. Come to Christ. <clears throat> we, we look at judgment, but there's always mercy associated with it he talked to the people of Israel and he told them over and over again you are have become so bad you can't this land is going to vomit you out and it did they went to exile but he always said I'm going to bring a remnant back the same as Sodom and Gomorrah Lot and his family were rescued 
You look at the flood, Noah and his family were rescued. There's always mercy, and it's mercy available to people. We just got to get over our sin. We've got to get over ourself, and we've got to get over our self-righteousness. And we've got to come humbly before the cross and be saved. Lord, I, I thank you that you give us your word. You give us your wonderful word. And we need to take it seriously. We see that because judgment has fallen and judgment will fall. And if we don't heed these words, we're in dire straits. But Lord, just I pray today that, that people can hear your call, that you call people to yourself for safety. Not only for safety either. It's not just about being saved. It's about actually you lavishing these things upon us and about growing into the image of Christ. You actually say that in scripture that you want us to grow into your image so that you can commune with us. That is the ultimate. It's not just about salvation, although that is very important, but it's about sanctification. It's about becoming holy and set apart. And Lord, I just pray that this message would give us a, a cause for, for, for thought. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.